Good morning, City Church. Our passage for study this morning is from Psalm 123, a song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. If you would, please be seated this morning. And as you do so, I would love to just pray with you, uh, God's blessing over the Word this morning, so that uh, we're not just hearers of the Word, but we're doers also, and that takes uh, heart transformation. So if you would bow with me. God and Father, this is your Word. Uh, Just as surely as if it was lowered to us this morning in a basket, uh, you have spoken it, and uh, you've preserved it. You've given it to us. Uh, It is useful for uh, all things uh, leading to a life of godliness and to eternal life. And so uh, we thank you for it and ask you that you would bless it. Lord, would you use it to transform our hearts this morning? And we pray all of these things in the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as uh, we've already mentioned this morning, uh, there's war kind of in the air. People are talking about it. People are thinking about it. Uh, they're concerned about it. Um, and it is true. There is uh, war going on. Russia's uh, uta- uh, attack on Ukraine. Uh, though we don't like to think about it, I guarantee you that our uh, intelligence services here in the United States thinks about our interactions, uh, even with a trade partner like China, as a cold war right now. We see civil war in Ethiopia, we see religious war in Yemen, and what I notice about our generation that's generally kind of uh, comprised in this room is that uh, we've been born into such decadent times that lack a sense of history that we think that wars of conquest, like what Russia is doing now in the Ukraine, are somehow unique, somehow uniquely terrible. And of course, they are terrible, but they are not unique. Uh, What we see is the tragic effect of sin on a world over the scope, over the span of worldwide history, and we see that war is the norm. It's not a good norm. It's a sinful norm. It's the effects of sin here in this world, but it is a norm. Uh, Warring with people is something that is normal to the human condition, and it's one of the things that I feel like we lack is a tragic view of the world. Uh, Our generation, maybe in particular, and I apologize if this is not your experience or your generation, but I do feel like oftentimes we have been born into such a time and such a place that we think that it is our right to be, uh, you know, to live a life that is generally comfortable and happy and that we will die in our beds in our 80s in relatively good health, but that we will die in our sleep. And that just isn't the normal human condition. It's not even the normal human condition here in this world as we sit. It's just one of the things that we've coaxed ourselves into believing. But there is a prerequisite to war, to conquest, to domination, and that is the scorn and contempt of other people, of other image bearers. In order to go to war with them, whether it's a war of war, uh, words or whether it is a war of uh, warheads, You have to have some level of scorn or contempt for your fellow man, for your fellow image bearer. 
And it's easy to see when you look at things like Russia's provocations in uh, Ukraine or uh, between Sunni and Shia tribes in the Middle East. It's maybe even easy to see for us if we look back in history at 1940s Germany. But what about when we talk about other kinds of war, like revolutionary wars? Uh, We tend to think of those as like a special kind of category. Those aren't really necessarily uh, an offense towards fellow image bearers. Those are just fighting for your rights. They're uh, revolutionary. So whether it is the uh, American War for Independence or whether it is the Russian uh, Revolution or the French Revolution, I will tell you, I will presuppose this morning that scorn and contempt work both ways, because in order to go to war with someone, in order to take up arms, in order to take life, you have to have dehumanized another. Now, I'm using very specific words there this morning, okay? In order to take life, you have to have, at some level, dehumanized another image bearer of God. More on that here in just a moment. But as we take it up right now, we look at the American Revolution, and we see the Englishmen taking up arms with each other. As we look at the Russian Revolution, we see these people kill the monarchy that had, uh, of course, you know, used their power to enslave and, uh, I mean, literally uh, take people into uh, years of famine, lived in luxury, but then made everybody else live in poverty. Or the French Revolution, a bloody, bloody revolution, a violent revolution, had to have been done in such a way where both sides dehumanized the other. The entire aristocracy was killed by the proletariat by the middle class, by the poor. Both sides had to have dehumanized the other. And of course, we know that at some level, we have to understand that pride and power dehumanizes and disenfranchises. So if you're high and lofty with pride and power, you have to dehumanize and disenfranchise those that are below you. But we don't often like to think, especially in revolutionary war, that the other side has to do the same thing, that the poor proletariat has to seek vengeance and vindication for their plight, for their station in life. But we tend to, especially as Americans, value one of those over the other. But at some level, in order to do that, you have to dehumanize, devalue human life. And of course, that has application for us in our society today. You might have heard people, I think, uh, uncarefully refer to what we're experiencing now in the United States, the restlessness in our society as an impending or maybe even cold civil war. You may have heard people talk about it in that kind of way. And of course, we know and understand that there is some kind of culture war afoot right now. And what we see is, is that much like those revolutionary wars, that people, cross-cultural classes, are showing scorn and contempt for one another. You might be like, what does this have to do with anything? Show me where that's true in our society. It's true everywhere. It doesn't matter if you were a Bernie bro that was showing contempt and scorn towards the 1%. It doesn't matter if you were a uh, Trump flag-waving conservative person saying, hey, you know, uh, I feel disenfranchised by the elite. It doesn't matter who you are. We can see in our culture right now a dehumanization of other image bearers of God in the way that we talk about one another, in the way that we think about our society, in the way that we uh, advance social cohesion or non-social cohesion. There is a devaluing of other people. 
Are there people in our society that maybe even you this morning think that person is lesser? That person has views that are uh, not worthy of being expressed. I can't understand those people. I have scorn. I have contempt for those kinds of people. What we need to understand is that 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 cycle builds on itself until war is all-consuming. And so the question for the Christian, the question for you this morning, is how do we break the cycles of dehumanization? Now, for those of us who come into the room with a a strong sense of justice one way or the other, I will go ahead and tell you that this sermon will not be satisfying to you. We are going to take a look at this psalm and see what this psalm has to say for us this morning. But the question that I want for us to ask is, as Christians, how can we lead a way towards breaking these cycles of dehumanization? How can we avoid war with one another? And what I think that this Psalm has to tell us this morning, Psalm 123, that I hope that you, if you've closed your uh, app or closed your Bible, that you will open back up to so that we can go through it together. What I hope that we will all learn is that those who have had enough, those who have had enough, lift their eyes to the Lord's throne of mercy. Those who have had enough, lift their eyes to the Lord's throne of mercy. And we're going to do that by understanding a few things this morning. We're going to understand first what wearies. What wearies? What wearies the soul? We're going to ask this passage that. The second thing that we're going to do is learn what it is to be humbly expectant, to have humble expectation. And then finally, I want for us on this road to get a glimpse of Jesus, for us to understand what it is to be patiently pleading. What wearies? Humble expectation patient pleading. That's what we're doing this morning. Now, if you're new with us, we've been marching through the Psalms of Ascent. And just to give you an understanding of what that is, those are these Psalms where uh, they're moving towards Jerusalem. There's a journey up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place of worship, and these uh, poems, these songs, these prayers would have been said by people who were on their way towards worship. And what we've learned from uh, Psalm 120 to 123 so far is that first, the worshiper looks around. They look around, they understand that they're in the midst of a deceitful and deceptive world. So they look around, but then secondly, they look up. They look up to the hills, they look towards Jerusalem, and they start off on an uncertain journey. Last week, we learned that those people are in Jerusalem, that worshiper looks at Jerusalem to see what he finds there, and what he finds is peace. This morning, however, we will notice that the psalm is not lifting his eyes to the hills, but rather is lifting his eyes to the Lord. And he's not lifting his eyes to the Lord in praise of the Lord as much as it is a lament to the Lord. Now, you'll recall that when we kind of kicked this off, I gave you some categories for us to think about in terms of the Psalms. There are Psalms of praise. These Psalms of praise are the ones that are lifting and exalting who God is, but there are also these Psalms of lament. Now, lament isn't a word that we use very often, but it's one that we kind of know and intuit in our hearts, in our souls. And what I want for us to do by way of just defining more specifically is that a psalm of lament looks at the world, looks at problems, looks at sin, looks at brokenness, looks at injustice in the world, and laments it and asks God to do something about it. So I wonder this morning if you are in a lamenting kind of mood. 
If you are, uh, this is going to meet you. If you're not, I'm sorry. We're going to break some of just that uh, encouragement and praise and everything by going to a place that so often we find ourselves in, and that's a place of lament. We're going to look at brokenness in the world and ask God to do something about it. So what is wrong according to the psalmist? It's very important as a good uh, Bible student for you to ask the question of the text. And the question that I want to ask this morning is, what is wrong with the world according to the psalmist? What is it that they are lamenting? Maybe more specifically, the first point this morning, what wearies the soul? What is it, if you were just to look at this passage, that wearies the soul? The psalmist says this, have mercy on us, for we have had more than enough contempt. We have had more than enough. In fact, he repeats it twice in that uh, two sets of verses that the psalmist has had enough. And I wonder this morning if you know what that feels like. Have you ever been in the place where you have just had it? You've had enough. You've experienced all that life has to give you and you're lamenting and you've just had enough. What wearies the soul The psalmist is going to tell us our soul has had more than enough, what, read it with me, of the scorn and of the contempt. Those are the two words that I was just using to talk about the dehumanization of people this morning, is that in order to dehumanize, you have to have some level of scorn and contempt for those people. Now, scorn and contempt are words that we know, but we don't use very often, and so I want to define them in some way. The word scorn, we actually find that Hebrew word used elsewhere in Nehemiah 2, where it says that their enemies jeered at and despised us. To scorn someone is to believe that they are worthless, to jeer at and even despise because they are not as worthy as you That's what scorn means. The second word, contempt, is uh, just the belief that a person is beneath consideration. So it's a similar word, but it's not necessarily the same as going, you're, uh, you're devalued. It's actually telling you how much you devalue. They're not even worth you thinking about. They're not worth your consideration. That's what contempt is trying to communicate to us this morning. So what is it, in a nutshell, that the psalmist is feeling? What is it that is wearying his soul? And it's that the psalmist feels dehumanized. Somebody out there is dehumanizing him. And so we must ask the second question, which is, who? Who are these people that are showing the psalmist scorn and contempt? And we get really specific answers here. And I want for us to look at these two. Those who are at ease. It's almost a military term, at ease, soldier. This is the person that's not having to worry about anything. They're not having to put on airs. They're not having to uh, do anything. This is the person that is comfortable. They are at ease. The person that is at ease is giving the psalmist scorn. Those who are at ease are the ones that are complacent, likely either because of their wealth or because in this context of this psalm, they're people that have no longer regarded God's word, his Torah, as being worthy of being followed. They may be uh, people who are either wealthy or they uh, are deprived of spiritual vigor. They don't care anymore. They're just ethnic Jews, or they're people that are not religious. Those are kind of the two people that we get the idea that the psalmist is talking about. They're just at ease, and they're showing him contort. But the second group of people is the proud. 
The proud are contemptuous because they believe that they are better than another. Now, here's, here's the truth, especially in our society right now. We hear these words. We look at scorn and contempt, and we go, yeah, that's, those people are terrible. Those people really ought to have somebody maybe uh, try to vindicate. Uh, or people should move in vindication towards those people. But if we're being totally honest... If you do the heart work, if you look inside of yourself, you're going to find people that you have scorn and contempt for. So confession time. I will tell you that in the ugliness of my own heart, there are just times daily where I find uh, maybe not what I would verbalize as scorn or contempt, but if you put the magnifying glass on that sin and you go, is this person worthy of my time and consideration? And my heart answer just goes, they're not. Or, or just because of uh, my station in life and the things that I'm dealing with, I just go, you know what, I deserve a little bit of time for myself. I'm a little at ease. I've made enough money to cover over what my family needs. I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the things that I need. I'm just at ease. And you know what, the problems of really problematic people are too problemy for me. And I wouldn't say it out loud. I certainly wouldn't say it in a group of people like this, Right? But honestly, if you examine my heart, there are people that I have contempt and scorn for. There are people, your, your brand may not be my brand. It may be that you take a lot of uh, just pride in your education. And if people aren't educated like you, they're not worth your time. If they can't have the same conversations, same dialect, they can't get your same jokes, they're not worthy of your time. Maybe there are people that believe something different politically from you. We've already mentioned this. Those people are lesser than. They don't get it. You've uh, maybe had enough of them. There are people that believe things that you find repugnant, repulsive. They're, it's almost like they're like a little less than you, a little less human than you are. The truth, if we really examine it, is, is that all of us at some level have scorn and contempt for others. There is a place in the human heart that looks to dehumanize. I see this from uh, my kids. My kids come home and they talk about uh, kids that are bullying other kids, kids that they're bullying or being bullied by. It might be subtle, it might be overt, but like even our little kids know what it is to have scorn and contempt for one another. Even our toddlers, you have that toy, I want that toy, I'm going to have that toy. Adults aren't that much better. We have scorn and contempt for other people that look different than us, speak differently than us, that value different things, live in different locations than us. And if we're willing to say that it's repulsive and repugnant in others that are elevated above us, we have to be willing to do the heart work of saying it's repulsive and repugnant when we find it in our own hearts. So who are these people? They are people that are at ease and they are prideful. And the psalmist exasperated, says, I've had enough of them. I've had enough of their haughty hubris. I'm done with them. Okay? So that's what he's expressing. It's just a real expression that we're getting from the psalmist this morning. And I wonder if you feel it. Maybe not from anyone in particular, but generally speaking from other people in our society. Maybe you've had it with the elites. Maybe you've had it with other people that are a part of your school. Maybe you've had it with someone else, whoever it is. I'm asking you to consider that this morning. Do you feel this? I want to read just for a moment so that I can, um, so that I can actually like, focus some of our time on Jesus. Isaiah 53 
where we find that Jesus is the one who has been scorned and has been contemptible in the eyes of others. Isaiah 53, if you'd read with me. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. For he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one, who, uh, who, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Does Jesus... The one whom this was foretold about, does he understand what it is to receive scorn and contempt? The answer this morning is, is that you have a Savior who has experienced that. If you've had enough, if you've felt the oppression of the scorn or contempt of others, I want you to know this sweet truth, and that is, is that Jesus has been right there with you. He's experienced what you've experienced. He's experienced the scorn and the contempt of humanity, and you we together can identify with him. So what we learn here is that those who have had enough scorn and contempt have a choice, okay? So you could just read that first passage and you could either use it to uh, tear down uh, something else, institutions, people. You could say, you could self-justify and say, hey, it's okay that I've had enough. I'm just going to say it like the psalmist says it. Or on the other side of it, you can not say that. You can say, uh, I identify with this and I'm going to get depressed and lowly. You can either choose to look up at those who look down at you and try to tear them down, or you can look down on yourself and try to tear yourself down. And here's the question that I want for us to answer. Those who have had enough scorn and contempt, where should they look? And that's the second point this morning. It's they should look with humble expectation at the Lord. Verse 1. Verse 1. We look to the Lord. We look to the Lord. Read it with me. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hands of their mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. So what we learn is, is that we are to look to the Lord to break this cycle of dehumanization. We look to the Lord to break cycles of dehumanization. Now that's completely different than these revolutionaries that are out there. If you looked at, uh, if you looked at France, Before and during the French Revolution, you had this aristocracy, this monarchy that was looking down on all of the people, uh, taxing them into oblivion. It didn't matter that they didn't have enough food to feed themselves. They kept on having all of these elaborate parties and building gigantic chateaus and encrusting everything in gold and eating the finest food all while people were starving. They looked down on them. But here's the key. The French people rose up in a violent rebellion And they didn't just dethrone and defrock those people that were oppressing them. They killed them with guillotines, blood in the street, tearing things down, burning things down. 
Is that also to be what we are to do? No, we're not to look down on others. And we're not also to then look down on those who look down on us. Rather, we are to look to the Lord. If you don't look up, you'll look down. Verse 2, it says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes, together, our eyes look to the Lord our God. So what we get here is a word picture. We get this uh, exclamation, I look to you, O Lord, and then we get this picture of what we're looking for, what we're looking at, and what we get is this servant who's looking to the hand of the master, this maid uh, servant who's looking to the hand of her mistress, and what they're doing is they're paying attention to the hand of authority rather than inattentively elsewhere in the room. We anticipate the direction, we anticipate the approval, we anticipate the gifts of the master, the merciful master, our Lord, our God. Mark 6 says this, all of the people of Bethlehem who would have uh, uh, known in the, in the Galilee, who would have known who Jesus was, who knew that he was a uh, carpenter's son. There was nothing, again, majestic about him. They knew nothing about him. And here he comes along preaching the kingdom, saying, repent and have faith in me. He comes back and everybody goes, who is this person? And then they say something really specific about his hands. How are such mighty works done by his hands? What we need to know is that we need to look to the hand of our master, the hands that did mighty works, that accomplished not just miracles, but the miracle of resurrection, the miracle of bringing you into eternal life. How do we respond when we are fed up? We look to the hand, the mighty hands of our master. But what we get is a paradox. What we get is a paradox here. If you want out of your humiliation, you must be humble. Do you get that? What this passage could tell us is that if you've had enough of the people that are above you and proud, just go behead them. Get to it. But it doesn't say that at all. It says for us to look up at our Lord Jesus. What we get is this beautiful word that in order to get out of your humiliation, you must be humble, you must look up, you must look to the hand of the Lord. If you look instead to scornful and contemptuous people, if you want vengeance, if you want vengeance for the villainy, if you want the possessions of the proud, you will have neither. You will then look down on them as they look down on you, and neither of you will look up to the Lord. This is the key for the Christian to know and understand how we are to break this cycle of dehumanization. Now, clearly, our culture is obsessed. It's obsessed with class and clout, but it's not just our culture, it's every culture. You can go to a, a tribe in the middle of nowhere, and there will be things that, uh, that promote and power and prestige a person. There will be things that lift some up above other people. You can go to the uh, biggest, grandest civilizations of humanity and find things that were built to exalt people. We're obsessed with it. But here's the key, too. We also lament it. We celebrate celebrity and despise it at the same time. We idolize the wealthy and hate them for it in the same moment. 
Many are wanting to tear down the institutions that protect such people, to take away the riches of those and to redistribute it. Ironically, moreover, uh, we ourselves, people, feel depressed. We feel self-contempt. So it's not just the contempt of the people that are above us. We actually feel self-contempt because we have so clearly obsessed about class and culture and wealth. We have self-contempt for falling short of big and unrealistic dreams. I wonder how much this is true of how many people in this congregation you grew up in a, uh, in a uh, more than likely, a generation that wanted celebrity and wanted wealth and wanted comfort almost more than anything else. And what you found in adulthood is that doesn't come to very many people. It's really hard. So I wonder if you actually have something in your heart that's more than just a midlife crisis. We're not quite there yet for most of us. But it's just this self-contempt. I didn't I didn't arrive at my dreams. I, I, I strove, like, I strived to go and do big things, and I fell short. And for some of us, there's just a depression on, is this really what life is supposed to be like? Every dollar unmade, every vacation untaken, every person with more is a further humiliation. And what we have is a cycle of pain in our hearts. It's one for other people, that causes us pain, and it's one for ourselves that causes us pain as well. So you've had enough, and you want out. And what I want to tell you, what I want to plead with you, what I think that Psalm 123 is actually asking you to do is to stop looking down on yourself, stop looking down on others, and start looking up at Jesus. I'm going to read for you a story that is more than likely very familiar to you. It's in Matthew chapter 17. You can join me with, you, uh, with me if you want, but it's the transfiguration, and it has something to teach us about where our eyes should be. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. Well, what sweet words this is to us. That Jesus' glowing, transfigured face uh, with God, the authority of the Father, saying, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased, flattens the disciples out of complete and total humiliation. In the presence of the power of God, they felt unworthy, and Jesus comes over and he touches them and he says, have no fear. And when they looked up, what did they see? They saw Jesus. 
What I hope this morning and for the rest of your life and for all of eternity is that you will stop looking down on yourself, stop looking down on others, and that you will behold the face of Jesus alone. Have you had enough? Lift up your eyes and see no one else but Jesus. Look up at Jesus with humble expectation. Now, you might say, hey, you you got me with the looking up. You got me with the humility, but where's the expectation? Look at that word, till. Till he has mercy on us. He, it hasn't happened yet for this psalmist. He's there in the Old Testament saying, have mercy on us, O God. Have mercy on us. We've had enough. We're going to look to you until you have mercy upon us. And that's where we get to our final point this morning. It's the patient pleading. It says this in verse 3. Have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. For, this for carries a lot of weight this morning because those who have had enough lift their eyes to the Lord's throne of mercy. In its most direct context, the psalmist is saying, I've had enough of sinful scorners. Have mercy on me. Take them away. I look to the hand of my merciful master to relieve me from the hate of these haters. I mean, I know that we think that we're like coming up with that word like uh, here and now, but the truth is, is that there have always been hate, hateful haters. There have always been. They've always been around. They're throwing shade. And what this patient pleading is, I look to your hand, give me mercy. Give me mercy. And and what he's specifically wanting is relief, relief from these people that are looking down on him. So he's got his eyes in the right place, and he's asking for the right thing. The question is whether or not his pleas of mercy will be heard and answered. But every time that a plea for mercy flies past our life experience, it must inevitably end at a fundamental question, and that is, this morning, do you deserve mercy? Do you deserve mercy? This psalmist seemed to think that he could ask for it, but the question is, did he deserve it? Did he deserve God's loving hand take that away? Does he deserve mercy for his own sins? Just a little bit ago, we uh, sang uh, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And what we discovered even there in that song that we sang is is that Jesus' friends disowned him. His foes insulted him. Many hands were raised to wound him. None was posed to, to save him from that. The truth is this morning that we scorned Jesus. Our sin scorned Jesus. We talked earlier about how there wasn't, uh, there wasn't anything uh, like valuable in this world to look at Jesus, but now what we're finding is, is that we actually sent the scorn of our sin to him on the cross. We scorned our Savior, and here's the gospel. Here's what I want for you to take away in the midst of all of the bad news that uh, you have actually scorned Jesus, is that there on the cross, in the midst of all of our scorn, all of our contempt, what does Jesus plead for? Mercy. Mercy to be relieved from the cross? The Son of Man was there with nails driven through his hand, with uh, bleeding from his brow, mocked and scorned by people, king of the Jews. 
There was a man there who is uh, literally just deriding him and scorning him. If you, if you can save, uh, if you're really truly the son of man, save yourself and save us. He was scorned there. The crowd had gathered there below him to crucify him. Crucify, crucify. And he receives all of this scorn, and the man who uh, most could have pled for mercy, most could have asked uh, God the Father to send angels to remove him from his pain and discomfort, didn't. But he does plead for mercy. Who does he plead for mercy for? He prays mercy on his foes. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This psalm of lament sees what's wrong in the world and asks God to do something about it. So, God does something about it. Our pleas for mercy are made sure and strong for salvation because Jesus is the master of mercy. I want for us to just think on that for a moment, for us to know and understand that we threw nothing but scorn and contempt at our Savior, and he, uh, he responded in no other way but loving mercy. John 17, verses 1 through 5 said this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent I, glorify you, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me with your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Did, did you hear at the very beginning of all of this what happened? Even Jesus looks up. Jesus, in the midst of the high priestly prayer, prayer still looks up to the Father, so when we talk about looking up to Jesus, when we talk about looking up at him on the cross for our sins, when we talk about looking up him, at him enthroned in heaven, you have to know that even Jesus does this. He looks up to the Father. He lifts his eyes to the Father. And when he did, he pled for our mercy. Before he is betrayed in the garden, even Jesus lifted his eyes to the Father. And so we should too. So here's my question for you this morning. Have you had enough? Have you had enough of the scorn of others? Have you had enough of the scorn of your own sin? I want to charge you this morning to lift your eyes to Jesus with expectant pleas for mercy. Because in Jesus, your pleas are not unanswered like they were for the psalmist so many years ago. They were not answered immediately. We don't know what the response was, but we do know that he sent Jesus. And so when we plead for mercy, we know that the answer is yes. Let us pray. God and Father, you are great and glorious. You are filled with grace and mercy. And so, Father, this morning, we want to lift our eyes to you. We want to lift our eyes to our Savior, Jesus, and know that as we look at him, 
as we plead with him for mercy, he is faithful, he is just, he is merciful to forgive us our sins. Father, I pray for the people in this room that have believed that for a really long time, that know that you have answered their pleas for mercy in Jesus Christ with a big yes. Father, I pray that you would help them to believe it anew, believe it afresh, that you would renew the joy of their salvation this morning. But Father, I also pray for those who have never heard this word, never received it that way. Lord, would you help their heart cry to you for mercy, even if they don't know specifically what it is that they're crying for, that the effects of sin that wash over them daily, that the scorn of others that they feel so intimately, uh, Lord, that they would cry out to you for mercy and that you would give them assurance in their heart that you are a merciful and mighty God. Father, we pray all of these things in the blessed name of your son, Jesus. Amen.